0: Well, if you would, uh, take out your Bible again and turn to Genesis chapter 37. Genesis 37, and we'll begin begin reading in verse 2 through the end of the chapter. So, Genesis chapter 37, beginning in verse 2. This is God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Take careful attention to the reading of it. These are the generations of Jacob. Joseph, being seventeen years old, was pasturing the flock with his brothers. He was a boy with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any other of his sons because he was the son of his old age. His brothers said to him, Are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? So they hated him even more for his dreams and for his words. Then he dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? And his brothers were jealous of him, but his father kept the saying in mind. Now his brothers went to pasture their flock near Shechem. And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, and see if it is well with your brothers, and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. The man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. "'Tell me, please, where are they pasturing the flock?' And the man said, "'They have gone away, for I heard them say, "'Let us go to Dothan.' So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, "'Here comes this dreamer. "'Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits.' Then he will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what will become of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hand, saying, Let us not take his life. And Reuben said to them, Shed no blood. Throw him into this pit here in the wilderness, but do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore. And they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty, there was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat. And looking up, they saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, on their way to carry down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come. Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. His brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by, and they drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit, and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took, him, they took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted. And he said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, a captain of the guard. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of our Lord remains forever. You may be seated. Let's pray together. Gracious Father in heaven, we thank you for this reading of your word. We pray, Father, now that you would give us ears to hear as the word is preached. Be with this your servant. We pray that we may understand this passage. Be able to apply it in our lives. And most of all that we may see Jesus in it. That we may be more comforted in your gospel. And in our Savior. Even Jesus Christ our Lord. And we ask this in his name. Amen. Well, we come now to the tenth and final toldoth of the book of Genesis. Uh, you might remember that the book of Genesis is split into ten books, or toldoth is the Hebrew word. This records here. This records for us the history of the sons of Jacob. Uh, the focus, of course, mainly is on Joseph, the second youngest of Jacob's, uh, the second youngest son of Jacob, who was born of Jacob's beloved wife, Rachel. And of course, there are other sons, and there are others who show up in the narrative, but the, the, the main focus uh, from here, really to the end of Genesis, is on Joseph. And the reason for this is that Joseph, by God's providence, was sent ahead of Israel in order to provide for them during the coming famine and to segregate the nation from the wicked Canaanites until the iniquity of the Amorites is complete if we have learned anything from the family of Esau which we looked at last week it is that mixing the ungodly in marriage or mixing with the ungodly in marriage will probably lead to ungodly children And so God is here providing protection for His people, in a sense, even from themselves, and in a means of salvation for them. And He does this by sending Joseph to Egypt as a slave. This is accomplished as well through the wicked intentions of Joseph's own brothers. This is the purpose which Joseph himself will proclaim later in Genesis chapter 50 and verse 20. He said, as for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Joseph is sent ahead to Egypt to save Israel. And so much like a lot of the narrative of genesis we are we once again see the providence of god god's providence at work as he guides governs and overrules the actions of men so that he might accomplish his purposes and in this way, Joseph is used to, to save his people. That We will see that he is a type for Christ. Actually, he is an antitype. Not anti, A-N-T-I, but anti, A-N-T-E, an antitype. That is, one who comes before the realization comes. Joseph is an antitype of Christ. He comes before. He, he's, a, he's a type in a shadow, which is... Uh, which is seen fully, of course, in Christ himself. Joseph suffered. Joseph was hated like Christ was. And like Christ, who saves the world through faith in him, Joseph is able to save his brothers and ultimately the nation. Of course, not through faith he provides for them, but he is a type, a shadow pointing us to that which comes in Christ. Like Joseph's brothers, you and I are sinners, even murderous in our hearts. And Christ rescued us through His death and resurrection. We were destined for hell. Christ, who is the King of kings, the second person of the Godhead, the Son of God, in His death and in His resurrection, has brought us up from the pit. By faith in Him, we are made partakers of the divine blessing. We are invited into the great banquet of the King of Kings. We'll see later in the story, of course, that his own brothers are at the banquet table of Joseph. And so the story of Joseph is a story which points us, it points us to the redeeming work of Christ in type and in shadow. Now there's much that there's much more that can be said and will be said in coming weeks as we look at the life of Joseph. Um, but for now, the point is to recognize God's providence, God's controlling of these events. And so we again begin with uh, the familiar Toldoth. These are the generations of and these are the generations of Jacob. This is a, this is an accounting of the sons of Jacob, and this will again take us to the end of Genesis, ending with the tribes of Israel living peaceably in Egypt, away from Canaan for four generations until, the again, the iniquity of the Amorites is complete. And so the story of the sons of Jacob begins with the focus on the favored son of Jacob, and that is, of course, Joseph. And it says, when Joseph was 17 years old, We read that he pastured the flocks with his brothers. Now, immediately, we are introduced to two things. First of all, his age, and also the kind of relationship that he had with his brothers. As a young boy, Joseph had grown up with the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah. These were uh, the two concubines of Jacob. And so he grew up with their sons. Now, the implication of the passage is that Joseph, though, was not well treated by these half-brothers. He was mistreated by them. It's implied in the Hebrew that he was treated like a servant would be treated, not like a brother would be treated. So he's not, he does not have a very good relationship with his brothers. And so now he is 17 years old. He's becoming a man, and yet he is still young. He's much younger than the rest of his brothers. In many respects, they perhaps treated him like he was still a boy. He was treated as a boy as the others have become men. Now, this is a very awkward age for a young man who is among men. He's not afforded any respect, and this is is compounded by him having the most favored son status. And so you begin to get a picture of why Joseph has problems. Now, the final phrase of verse 2 tells us something of why he was mistreated. A very short little sentence, it says, And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now, some have taken this to mean that Joseph was some sort of tattletale. And you know, if he's a tattletoe, you might say, well, no wonder he has a bad relationship with his brothers. He's always telling on them. But that doesn't really fit with what we know about Joseph's character, particularly from the rest of the narrative. Joseph was not perfect by any means, but he was a righteous young man, and he sought to do that which was right, even when it was unpopular. And sometimes that meant giving a bad report about his brothers. He was honest with his father about things. One commentator put it this way, the narrative of Joseph shows how wisdom rules. Joseph is being portrayed as as faithful to his father in the little things. So whatever his father asked of him, he was careful to do it. He had a very keen sense of justice, which is why he would give an accurate report of the actions of his brothers, what they did or perhaps what they did not do. By being careful of the small things, Joseph would eventually be given authority over great things. And it was God who was preparing him for this. Now, the the disjunctive clause, which starts in verse 3, explains another part of the reason that there's animosity against Joseph by his brothers. We read that Joseph, or Israel rather, loved him more than his other sons because he was the son of his old age. Now here again rises the ugly head of favoritism. Now you might remember that Jacob had experienced that very same kind of favoritism. Remember that Jacob's father, Isaac, had loved Esau more than him. Esau was the favored son. But now, here's Jacob doing the very same thing. He's favoring one son over the others. In fact, he even gives him a special garment. A richly decorated tunic, which in Hebrew is li- it says is literally to his hands. Now, the Hebrew is actually uncertain as to what exactly that means. Uh, the multicolored translation comes from the Septuagint and also the Latin Vulgate, they translate it many colored And so it could have been a long-sleeved tunic, or it could have been a tunic which was decorated all the way down to its sleeves. That may be what is inferred there. Whatever it is, it's not clear. The only other places in Scripture where this same phrase turns up is in 2 Samuel chapter 13. And that's in a reference to a robe which the king's daughter Tamar wore, which then may point to a garment which indicates royalty. So this may have been a royal garment. And if this is the case, then perhaps the tunic serves as a foreshadowing of something more that's to come later, as he will be in royalty, as it were. But of course, if your brother has has been given all of the treatment of being royal, you may not feel great about that. Why is he treated so well? Why is he considered to be royal? And whatever the nature of the robe is, the point is clear. This very special garment which set Joseph apart from his brothers as the favored son, perhaps even as the royal son, this made his brothers very angry. They didn't like this. So much so that verse 4 says, when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, look what it says, they hated him and could not speak peacefully to him. The love of Israel for his son, coupled with the symbol of his special love, this this tunic, was cause for the sons to hate him even more. The animosity between siblings is another reminder of the animosity which found itself all over Jacob's family. Uh, The the animosity that Jacob had with his brother, the animosity that uh, Jacob's wives had towards one another. There's a lot of animosity in this family. And the disregard that the brothers held towards Joseph meant that they held him in contempt and they had nothing but contemptuous things to say to him. They could not say anything peaceable to him. There was no kindness in Jacob's household towards Joseph. Or it could be translated this way, they could not even so much as greet him. They wanted really nothing to do with his brother. The sons of Jacob then were acting more like Cain, the seed of the serpent. So now, verse 6, Joseph announces that he's had dreams. You already see that he doesn't have this great relationship with his brothers. They, They don't like him. And now he comes with these dreams. Now, dreams in the ancient Near East were a common means of divine communication. The Lord used dreams to reveal His will or to bring about prophecy. The revelation of this uh, at the beginning of the story demonstrates God's preserving and governing all his creatures and their actions. So this dream foreshadows events which will take place decades into the future when Joseph ultimately becomes the second in command in Egypt. And Joseph again will become an antitype of Christ, one who will suffer and one who will save his people. The dream, however, does nothing to decrease the amount of hostility which the the brothers feel. In fact, these dreams increase the amount of hostility they have toward their brother. Now, the dream itself is actually pretty simple. The family is gathered with gathering sheaves in the field. Joseph's sheath then rises up and stands, and the sheaves of the family gather around him and they bow down to him. God had chosen Joseph to be the hero of this drama of redemption. Now, of course, the brothers they understand very well what this dream is about. And it galled them to no end. Now, some have suggested that Joseph was gloating over his brothers, or somehow he was prideful. But again, this does the text does not really give us warrant to understand it that way. Now, of course, that doesn't mean he wasn't doing that. He was, after all, a teenager. But to understand this way is to read a little bit too much into the text, to impugn Joseph's character. It could be that Joseph was simply saying that I, I had a dream. Let me tell you about the dream. But of course, regardless, it was not well received by the brothers. Verse 8. They say, are you indeed to reign over us? Or are you indeed to rule over us? Now both of these uh, statements from the brothers are infinite absolutes, which give emphasis. The brothers are essentially saying this, you don't really think you will rule over us, do you? You don't actually think that, do you? And so because of his dreams, the text says they hated him even more. Then it says that Joseph dreamed another dream. And this dream is in very similar fashion, drawing on the same themes as the first. In fact, it's a repetition, really, of the same thing with different things there. Now, the fact that the dreams came in pairs show that God has determined the matter and that it will come about quickly. In fact, Joseph teaches this when he interprets Pharaoh's dreams in Genesis chapter 41, verse 32. One dream by itself could be open to misunderstanding or misapplying, but two dreams with the same meaning confirm the interpretation. All of the dreams in, in, in Joseph's account, by the way, come in pairs. So here the first dream was sheaves which bowed down, and the second is the sun, the moon, and the eleven stars which bowed down to Joseph. Now the point, again, is very clear. It's not lost on even Jacob. Joseph was to rule over the family. Verse 10. When he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him. And he said to him, what is this dream that you have dreamed? Now unlike the first dream, Joseph reported this one to his father. And his father's reaction is actually one of dismay. This vision that Joseph has had. His dream was a threat to the social order of the patriarchy. Joseph may have been the favorite son, but maybe this is too much. And so Jacob rebukes him, recognizing the sun, the moon, and the stars represented his family. Now by the way, the the mother mentioned here is not Rachel. We already know Rachel's dead. The mother is Leah. She would have taken up the sole mantle of the matriarch of the nation. Of both of these dreams taken together, it was understood that by God's decree, Joseph would take on a role which was superior to all of them, to his father, mother, and his brothers. Joseph was to be their superior. This was perhaps too much for Jacob to comprehend. Thus he says, Shall I, your mother, and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to the ground before you? How could you dream such a thing to think that you would be our superior? You know, it's like, son, I love you, but this is, this is this is too much. Jacob admonished Joseph for his impotence. How could you say such things, Joseph? You can't actually believe that this will take place, do you? Jacob may have doubted the truth in this of his dream on the one hand, but on the other, we read that he kept the saying in his mind. It's like, you know, Jacob may have been mystified, he may have been confused, but here's this double dream, and it must be taken seriously. What if this is true? true? What if this is true? Jacob is, maybe, at the very least, he's confused. He's not sure. This is pretty incredible. Now, for his brother's part, of course... They were jealous of him. They hated him. I mean, they already didn't like him, right? And now, here he comes, he's sharing these crazy dreams. Their animosity toward him has now coming to a breaking point, even to the point where they wish that he were dead. This kid is crazy. And so they they that leads them to launch a conspiracy. Against him. Now, verse twelve tells us that his brothers were away; they were pasturing their father's sheep at Shechem. So, some some period of time has now gone forward. The brothers have gone off pasturing the sheep. Now, the the, the narrative does not tell us why Joseph wasn't with them initially, but now Jacob was going to send his son on a reconnaissance mission. Verse thirteen, he says. Are not your brothers pasturing the flocks in Shechem? Come, I will send you down to them. Go, see if it is well with your brothers and the flock, and bring me word. Go go out and check it out. See what's going on. Let me know uh, things. Obviously, Jacob could trust his son to tell him the tr- truly what is happening in the field. But despite, So despite the animosity of the brothers toward Joseph... Jacob sends his son into a hostile environment of angry siblings, away from home, away from the protection of their father. Now perhaps Jacob doesn't see the brothers as a threat, and so he sends Joseph to Shechem. Now Shechem, you might remember, is significant because this was the scene of Dinah's rape. This is also the scene of Simeon and Levi's murder of the Levites. Which is an interesting connection of a place which has a history of violence for the people of Israel. Why, also, would they go so far? That's not explained in the text either. Which may tell us something about the peace which existed between Israel and their neighbors. It also may say something to the coming famine. It could be that they have to go all the way as far as Shechem because there's not sufficient grazing land where they were. But what the reason is, is not told to us. Nevertheless, Joseph went. He traveled the 50 miles from Hebron to Shechem. And it is here that he's found by an anonymous man who finds Joseph wandering around in the fields. Sort of interesting. Well, first of all, who is this man? It's not sad who he is. We don't know who who this is. And Joseph wandering about sort of reinforces this idea of him being somewhat naive. But also speaks to us about the providence of God. Here's Joseph. He has gone from his father. He's wandering around looking for his brothers. He's not finding them. He doesn't know where they have gone. But Joseph, it will be delayed just the right amount of time. So that the merchants who were to come could purchase him at just the right time. Well, the man asks Joseph, he finds him, he asks him, What are you seeking? He says, I am seeking my brothers. Please tell me, where are they pasturing the flock? Now, in the Hebrew construction, it is, It is my brothers I am seeking. So he, he actually puts brothers first. He emphasizes the family relationship. It doesn't seem that Joseph had the same animosity toward his brothers as they had toward him. Now this is of course very the, the fact that he puts the emphasis on the family relationship this is very opposite of Cain. You might remember when remember when Cain was asked about his brother Abel and his response to God was am I my brother's keeper. Joseph is seen here as being righteous. He he does see himself as his brother. He's seeking his brothers. Well, the man responded that he had heard they had gone to Dotham. Now we might ask, well, how does this man know this? We, first of all, you know we have no idea who this man is. And now somehow he knows their itinerary. How does he know they had gone to Dotham? Who is this man? Was he present when they spoke about going there? Did he did they tell him that directly? Did he happen to be in the field and overhear them? Did he hear from the grapevine? Who is this man and how does he know this? Now now some have suggested that there's a parallel here with with the unknown man who wrestles with Jacob, which is then to say that this would be the Lord who finds Joseph wandering around the field. The thing is, we can't be certain. We can't be dogmatic on this point. But what we can say is this. This is another example of God's providence. God is... Is ensuring these events would take place. He was ensuring that, Jake, or that Joseph would find his brothers and he would find them at exactly the right time for the events which would take place. God's hand of providence at work, God orchestrating events, guiding Joseph to the ends to accomplish his, at his God's will. And so Joseph then goes to Dothan and this is where he finds his brothers. Verse 18 then says, When they saw him coming from afar, they conspired together to kill him. Now Joseph's tunic probably gave him away. they very, it would have been recognizable even from afar. And so they saw him coming from some distance. And, here, and they say this, Here comes this dreamer. Ah, look. There's the dreamer. That the brothers spoke among themselves perhaps indicates that this was not just one brother who was leading, but that as they began to talk about Joseph, there was a pack mentality. Each one was getting worked up about, about this. And they literally called him the Lord of Dreamers. Here comes the Lord of Dreamers. The one who will lord it over us. Of course, this statement drips with sarcasm. It just drips with sarcasm. Joseph is identified by only why they hate him. All the, things, all the reasons they hate him are the only things they look at. They, they speak of his coat, his robe, and they speak of his dreams. And so their plan, as, as Joseph is coming closer and closer to them, their plan becomes very simple. Let's kill him. Let's throw him into one of these pits. The pits would have been water cisterns, which at that time would have been dried out. And so they would throw them in the pit, and then they were reward to their father. Some wild animal had got a hold of them. And if they say that let us kill him again, shows the group think which had taken over. They they'd, they'd worked themselves into a frenzy, and as a group, they were willing to do that which what they would not have considered doing individually. The dreams of Joseph though can't come to anything if he's dead. Here comes the Lord of dreamers, but if he's dead then I guess those dreams will come to nothing. But here's what they, they were sure of: Joseph would not rule over us. It is here now that the eldest brother Joseph, or rather uh, Reuben, intervenes. He, he desired to rescue his younger brother. He urges the others not to kill Joseph. Instead, he suggests that they should just simply throw him into one of the pits in the wilderness. And what's implied there is just let nature take its course. Just throw him in one of the pits, leave him in there. Nobody's going to hear him in the villages. It's going to be too far away. Just let him die alone like that. Of course, Reuben had other plans. He wanted to save Joseph. He wanted to return him to his father. But we might wonder, why does Reuben suddenly have a conscience? Perhaps he felt guilty for the injury he brought to his father. Remember, he had uh, taken one of his father's concubines. Maybe he felt the obligation to live up to being an older brother when their father wasn't present. Or maybe he was just—he trying to get back into the good graces of Jacob. Or maybe it's simply he saw that murder is a great evil and he didn't really want anything to do with this. Whatever the reason is, Reuben was the only brother to show compassion and mercy on Joseph. He saw that this is wrong. We can't do this. So as Joseph approached his brothers, little did he know what was about to happen to him. He wouldn't even be aware of Reuben's plan to intervene for him until years later in Egypt. He has no idea what's going on. The brothers perhaps didn't even know what they were going to do with Joseph. And so when he arrived, they took him. They stripped him of his robe. Remember that special tunic that he has? That garment? And they threw him into the cistern, which the text tells us was empty of water. Now these, these cisterns, these are pits which are found all over Israel. They're hewn out of the rock. They could be as deep as 20 feet. And so this would have made an excellent dungeon, which is what they use it for. They throw Joseph into that. And so after having thrown Joseph into the pit in callous indifference to their brother's cries, as he's crying out to them, they sit down to eat now text. Is silent on on this and the fact that he would have been crying out. But Joseph's uh, this is symbolic of Joseph's death. He's just thrown into the pit, and then they just they're they're sort of indifferent to him, and they eat. But in eating their meal, there is actually some irony. There's actually a lot of irony in this. Here they are as as in their brother is is trapped in a dungeon, as it were, crying out to them, and they are totally indifferent to him. The next time they will have a meal in Joseph's presence will be at his table, because he will save them. Isn't that something? They sit down to eat indifferent to their brother, but he will serve them at his own table where he will be, by the way, at the head of it. Well, it's now at this point that by God's good providence that the caravan of merchants come. Ishmaelites on their way to Egypt. They come at just the right time, don't they? Perhaps the brothers... We're going to listen to Ruth, and they were going to go, go ahead and kill him anyway. We, we don't really know, but what we know is this. They saw the Ishmaelites come, and Ju, Ju, Judah now steps up as a leader, and he asks this, What profit is it if we kill our brother, and we conceal his blood? Let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. It doesn't do us any good if we just kill him. Let's sell him. We can be still rid of him. If they're going to get rid of Joseph, they may as well profit from it. So Judas sub- suggesting, sub- su- uh, suggesting substituting one evil for a different sort of evil. The sudden arrival of these merchants means that Joseph's plight in the cistern would be short. And the brothers agree to sell him. And so the traders come, they lift him out of the pit, and they sell him for 20 shekels of silver. Interesting parallel. Jesus was sold for 30. Notice too, the the names uh, Midianite and Ishmaelite are both used for the same caravan. This is because these were interchangeable. These were really the same people group. Uh, These previously two nations had become one and they were successful merchants and traders. And so they brought Joseph up and they took him to Egypt to sell. When Reuben, though, returned, verse 29, when he came back to the pit, he saw that Joseph was not in a pit. It says he tore his clothes. So Reuben comes back. We don't know why he wasn't around when uh, the merchants came. But he finds that Joseph um, that Joseph was gone, and so he begins to mourn. He tears his clothes. Uh, Reuben was the one to suggest that Joseph be put in the pit so that he could rescue him later. Uh, he may have initially thought that the other brothers had killed him after all. And going back to his brothers, he says this, The boy is gone, and where shall I go? You see, Reuben is the oldest. And he was going to be the one to have to face their father. And he dreaded this. And frankly, it didn't really meet his purposes if he was trying to sort of you know, rebuild his relationship with his father. But what this also shows us is the failure of Reuben's leadership and the rise of Judas. They weren't really listen, willing to listen to Reuben. They were willing to listen to Judah. And so in order to cover up the sale of their brother, they decide to slaughter a goat. And they took the blood and they put it on this tunic, uh, the, the, uh, the uh, garment of many colors. And they do this to fool their father to thinking that Joseph had somehow been torn to pieces by a wild animal. And there is, again, irony here. There's so much irony in the Scriptures. Remember that J- Jacob had deceived his father with a couple of goats. They were slaughtered for a meal. And here, his own sons are doing the same thing. deceiving him and using these goats. And So the, bro- the brother's ruse, though, was a believable scenario. And, so the- and the tunic was unmistakable. And so, when Jacob saw it, he was able to identify it very quickly. Verse 33, it is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without doubt... Torn to pieces. He's he's easily deceived. He he, he believes what his sons report. And so he mourns. He mourns in all the traditional ways. He tears his garments. He, He puts on sackcloth. He mourns for his son many days. And so intense is his mourning that his sons and his daughters try to comfort him, but he would not be comforted. And he says, verse 35, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. This is how Jacob wept. He wept for days. This was his favorite son who he believed was dead. That Jacob, Jacob refused to be comforted by his sons and daughters shows is actually unusual. It shows the intensity of his mourning. In Jacob's mind, there would be no end to his mourning. He will never be done mourning. He will go to his grave crying for his son. Now, typically there was a set period for mourning, but Jacob would die in his mourning. This is what he's saying. The scene ends by describing the, the uh, destination of the enslaved brother. As Jacob mourns for what he presumes to be his dead son, the Midianites had now taken Joseph down to Egypt and sold him to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh the captain of the guard. Again, another example of God's providence. And this sets the stage for when the narrative returns to Joseph in chapter 39. God had, prov- had providentially provided for I- for Israel by sending Joseph ahead to Egypt. There will be much more to say on that later. Well, the story of Joseph is a wonderful example of God's providence. God's Most holy, wise, and powerful, preserving and governing all his creatures and all of their actions. It was God's will that Joseph be sent ahead to Egypt and that he would be used to accomplish his will, even through the sinful and wicked actions of his brothers. There are often circumstances in our lives where we come, which, which we come to, and we're led down a particular path. We, we end up someplace, and we, uh, sometimes we walk this path of life, and we begin to reflect on it and wonder, how in the world did I get here? you all experienced this, haven't you? How did I get here? Some of you probably wonder, how did I end up in West Plains? We made choices, and those choices led to further choices and further actions, and we could not have planned the route which got us to where we are. We all have experienced this. I think about this a lot, considering how our family ended up here in West Plains, how this church plant came together. God's hand was upon every area of our life, and God's hand is upon every area of your life as well. God is preserving and governing His people. This beloved congregation ought to give us great comfort. Because when, we, when it comes to walking in the will of God, what we are responsible to do is to walk in accordance with His revealed will, that which is given to us in His Scriptures. We're to walk according to His Word. He will work out where we end up and the circuitous cert- route we may take in getting there. This was certainly the case for Joseph. I mean, Joseph wouldn't have asked, like, Lord, you know, I want to go down to Egypt. Send me down as a slave. No. And yet Joseph was living obedient. He was living simply obedient to God. He was being obedient to his father. And we will see this further. Even as he sold as a slave, he will live obedient to his master. We're going to see this play out more as God's hand is upon him in Potiphar's household. And even what happens after that. God, through His providential hand, using even the evil intentions of the other sons of Jacob, accomplished His will by doing good to Israel. Ultimately, providing for the preserving of their lives. Our Savior, Jesus Christ, purchased us by His own blood. Blood which was shed at the hands of evil men. And yet this resulted in your salvation and mine by faith in Him. God's hand of providence. And since Christ has done this, do we really think that He would then leave us or forsake us? I mean, think about the rest of your life. Jesus died for you. He has called you to be His. Do you suddenly think, well, now God doesn't care about me? No. On the contrary, He has your best intentions in mind. He is doing you good. He is caring for His people. Do we always understand the route this will take? Do we we think that, well, I should be avoiding suffering then? No. No, God's people suffer. We see this with Joseph. We see this with many people in the Scriptures. God's people sometimes suffer. That doesn't mean He's left you. And sometimes it's because He's working out His intentions. We can take comfort that God is blessing. God is doing good. And so you can rest in our Savior, knowing that the God who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, will graciously give us all things. Let's pray together. Gracious God and Heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word. And for the reminder from Genesis, from the story of Joseph, that your hand of providence is always at work, that you are accomplishing your will and for your glory. Father, we pray that we may be faithful to walk in obedience to your word, that though circumstances in our life may not go the way we want them to go, that we can trust that you are doing good and that you are working all things out according to the counsel of your will for the praise of your glory. We thank you, O oh God, and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.